Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I'm your host, Justin Lamb, and this is a self-care summary. Get it? Like self-care summer, but summary? Yeah, you get it. As the summer winds down and we dive into season four of the podcast, crazy, I wanted to do kind of a Cliff Notes episode. For those of you that may have missed some of the episodes we did this summer, or maybe you heard them all and still want more... Or maybe you didn't listen to any and you found this as a way to still be a part of the whole thing. Welcome. Either way, thank you. This episode will give you some of the best parts of all of the self-care summer series episodes. We covered so many topics throughout the summer. Those topics were drinking water, cooking, exercising, uh, drinking alcohol, writing, meditation, human contact, self-pleasure, personal finance, and digitally detoxing. There was way too much valuable information to fit into one episode, though my original plan for this was to put all of them together. But instead, I went through each one and pulled out some of my favorite parts. You and I have lots in common. My request is sent. Would you like to be my friend? Would you like to be my friend? We'll go in order here and start out with the most basic topic water. This episode, we were joined by Stacy Geisel, Lauren Carroll, and Jenny Helms, who all had great information to share. Who knew that water was such a touchy subject? How much you drink, what form it comes in, what the pH level is, all of these and more are hotly contested. There are bonkers formulas out there that would have someone like me, 6'3", 250 pounds, I'm working on it, drinking 500 ounces of water a day. I'm not a doctor, but I'm pretty sure that would make my kidneys give up and leave my body. Like, see you, man, you're on your own, because I can't pee no more. My bladder's going with them pack in the bags what are the bags if your kidneys and your bladder had bags to pack would it be your spleen i don't know so <laughs> i got off track let's talk to some previous friends of the podcast to find out more about these uh, so-called formulas my name is lauren carroll i am a mother a wife a woman who is passionate about helping myself and other people feel good. And I pursued a certificate in plant-based nutrition. I learned it from a personal trainer who I worked closely with, which is half your body weight in ounces. So some people, I've heard some people say half your body weight in ounces plus 32 ounces, which to me seems excessive. This half your body weight theory came up a lot. From what I was always taught, it's your body weight cut in half is what you're supposed to drink. This is Stacy. I'm Stacy Geisel. I, I'm the owner of Evolve Beyond Limits, which is a human design company. I am a nurse. I'm still a nurse, technically. Uh, don't utilize that, but I am still a nurse. And then as far as nutrition, I got certified in nutrition. I think people have overdone it with water. They're getting a little, a little crazy with the, you know, like, let's all drink gallons a day. The truth of the matter is, though, that drinking water is, in the most obvious and simplest way, super good for you. We all know that we need water to live, but whether we all drink enough of it and understand all of its benefits, I mean, that's a whole other ballgame. I am chronically dehydrated. 
that is like, no, I'm, I'm not even kidding. Like that is, that is something I struggle with. So my name is Jenny Helms and I'm a licensed clinical marriage and family therapist. I will say anecdotally, I have noticed that when I am better about it, I feel a lot better and my head is a lot clearer and my workouts run smoother. And Jenny is not alone. A peer-reviewed article on the history of drinking water as it relates to society, written by Joyce Chaplin, published in 2020, discusses the lack of importance that the world placed on water and its intake as a measure of health. It was rarely mentioned in medical books, and clean drinking water as a basic human right is still pretty new to the grand scheme of things. Here's Lauren again. I think it's easy to take it for granted because it's such a mindless, boring thing that you know, thankfully we have access to in our lives. You know, we have access to fresh water, which is a privilege, I think. She's not wrong. And it is important to point out that not everywhere has access to clean drinking water. And if places like Flint, Michigan told us anything, it's that even if we think we have clean drinking water, we could be wrong. But let's assume the majority of listeners do have clean drinking water. Are we drinking enough? I think the average person probably doesn't drink enough water. When I was really in nursing and like holistic health coaching, it was always like, shoot for 80 to 100 ounces. Most people aren't getting that. And so any improvement in that is great. The basic statistics of water intake are pretty alarming. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, between 2005 and 2010, young people in the U.S. drank an average of 15 ounces of water per day and adults average of 39 ounces. So what's the solution? Why is it so important to self-care? When I think of self-care, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But water is an essential thing for every kind of person. After we got done drinking some water, we jumped into the kitchen to discuss how cooking is a form of self-care. For this, we spoke more to Lauren and brought in a couple new guests, too. Aaron Kozad, who is a professional chef and an instructor at the local Zen Center, and Erica Lamb, my wife and maker of all the good food. So we know that the cooking process is great for calming your mind and creating an almost meditative sense of mindfulness. But what about taking on an already stressed mind? A lot of cooking happens at the end of the day, and whether it was a shitty work day or you had to white knuckle through rush hour traffic, you know, finding a reason to use a knife for chopping vegetables instead of chasing off that beamer that cut you off uh, seems a little counterintuitive at the time. But alas, you know, it's, it's wrong to chase the guy in the BMW, and, uh, you know, there's evidence behind cooking taking away some of that stress and anxiety from the long day and the long drive. In her research for an article she wrote for the Washington Post titled How Cooking Became the Perfect Recipe for My Spiraling Anxiety, Jamie Friedlander found that a study in the Journal of Health Education and Behavior showed cooking seemed to increase self-esteem and improved psychological well-being. It also appeared to decrease anxiety and agitation in a variety of people, including burn victims and those with dementia. Reducing anxiety is a central theme in what a lot of people look for in possible self-care routines. And cooking, turns out, is great for this. Anxiety comes in many forms, and it can be debilitating. Sometimes it's just a feeling of restlessness or an inability to control that feeling of worry. Other times it may show up as being irritable or having difficulty concentrating. For some people, it's all of the above almost all the time. So how can cooking 
help with anxiety? Well, first of all, it's been proven that having a sense of control decreases anxiety. And when you're making a meal, you have all of the control over how it's prepared, what's in it, in lots of cases, the timing as well, right? And in addition, the serotonin released while you're cooking reduces stress and following recipes and processes can assist with concentration and take your mind off of other things that might be going on in your life. So let's get some input from this beautiful lady. My name is Erica Lamb and I am a person. I like trying to figure out like, okay, we're going to have people over. I need to plan this meal or, you know, strategize, shop. It's like a big, big problem that you have to solve. So that's very soothing to me. I really like that. I think it's just like this big thing that I have to untangle in a lot of situations. And I really enjoy that. When I first heard this, problem solving seemed like an odd thing to like about cooking. But as I mentioned before, when it comes to anxiety, having a sense of control, i.e. being able to solve these problems, can be a huge for anxiety, uh, which Erica speaks more to here. Anxiety is definitely something that I that I deal with. But yes, like I have a standard recipes that I make. I can kind of shut my brain off. And especially after a really stressful day, maybe at work, um, I tend to not make anything too big or inventive or new after when I know that I'm going through like a stressful or anxious period. Um, because when I'm making things that I make all the time, it's like autopilot. I don't even have to like look at the recipe that I maybe initially used. Um, cause I just know it by heart or I know what I like, or I just know what I want to make. Um, so it definitely helps calm me down after a long day. So it's, it's helped Um, my anxiety in that respect. That calming effect is directly related to the mindfulness we've already discussed. And the way we can gain some form of euphoria or clarity while preparing and cooking food is something that's been tested and proven time and time again. As I continued my research into the benefits of cooking food, I found a familiar word popping up all over the place. Creativity. I hadn't thought about this when I initially started to do this episode. But the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. You're literally creating something brand new. You're just taking ingredients and manipulating them to become something else. A study in the Journal of Positive Psychology finds that creativity you use specifically in cooking increases overall positive psychological functioning. And in another journal, Healthcare, a practice popular in Korea known as food art therapy, I love this, combines cooking with art and leads to positive thinking and self-discovery. The researchers noted that individuals experience an improvement in their self-expression and ability to be social beings, all from creating art on their plates. This is amazing. Here's Lauren again. I don't follow directions very well, but that is what makes cooking enjoyable for me, is that it's an opportunity for me to rely on my experience in the kitchen and just kind of eyeball things and um, taste test, you know, rely on my senses and my instincts to prepare food. And I have come to be able to do that with time after preparing certain types of recipes, you know, multiple times. So when you've done it enough times and you can nail it without actually having a specific recipe that you follow, that to me is one of the best feelings. And here's Erica with another idea for creativity in the kitchen. You kind of figure out what you like, what you don't like, and then I can get creative with recipes based on what I've learned about my preferences. And then 
I'll think of things that I want to make. I would say probably 60-70% of the time there's a recipe out there that matches exactly. And then the rest, there's a recipe out there that matches enough to where I can kind of fill in what I want to do, like the missing pieces, you know. Um, So I can get creative in those ways. Perhaps my favorite metaphor of all, though, regarding creativity and cooking comes to us from Aaron. Here he is again in his car. Yeah, I think creativity is like the the center of like my being. Whatever I do, it's like I want to do something creative. So whether it's painting or writing songs or playing music or making food, there is something very satisfying about taking base elements of things and making something unique to yourself from it. It's very satisfying. Cooking, I always describe to people as a lot like, you know, learning to play an instrument. First, you start with uh, the basics, right? You got to learn your scales. You got to learn to like chop, saute, you know, the elements of what it means to, to cook. And then you start to play other people's songs. So you take recipes from people that you like and admire and you learn, you don't change them. Like, I think a big mistake is right off the bat, a lot of people want to take a recipe and make it their own, but they haven't learned. So you need to make it the way that the chef intended it first and try to understand what they were doing. And then you would take, like, you know, sometimes you'll take riffs from a song and you'll start to write songs around those riffs. So now you can take elements and preparations from those recipes and see how they work with new things you've created. And then eventually you're just full on, you know, writing your own music or writing your own recipes. Finally, I have to point out the biggest surprise I found that resulted from what may have been my blind spot in doing this episode. I went into this with the assumption that everything self-care related to cooking and all the positive results you can yield from it, mindfulness, reduce stress, anxiety, calmness, all the stuff we talked about, all had to do with the actual process of cooking. But in talking to people and reading these different research studies, I found the biggest thing I was missing was the end result, the intention you put into your cooking because of who's eating it. Here's Lauren again discussing her favorite part about it. I love that... When I prepare food, I'm being given the opportunity to nourish people that I care about. And I can be intentional not only about the ingredients that I'm choosing to feed them, but also the energy that I'm putting into the meal as I'm preparing it. The intention put into the preparation and the ingredients and, you know, start to finish from farm to table, if you will, (laughs) it matters where it comes from, the plants or animals that it came from, and how it was prepared and how it's consumed, who it's consumed with, all matter. Oh my God, it's so true. I do it and I didn't even think about it. How I get to present the food I make to people is my favorite part. I love the opportunity to serve up like a perfectly prepared dish and a picture perfect plate. Like, you know, turn the chicken breasts just the right way. And for some people, uh, like Erica, it even triggers a sense of nostalgia. I'm glad you said that. That is like probably the biggest thing that I have with cooking is a sense of nostalgia, for sure. I grew up in a household where my mom, who did work outside of the home full time and had three kids and then obviously my dad, she made dinner seven nights a week. 
you know, we had family dinner at our dining room table every single night. And when I'm cooking, I definitely feel like my mom, you know, in a way, like I feel that I remember spending time in the kitchen with my mom and, you know, standing in one particular corner of the kitchen and, you know, just talking to her and learning from her and hanging out with her, spending time with her. And so being able to do that in my own kitchen with you or just people who are over my mom, you know, when she comes over and I get to cook for her, you know, it feels like this tradition, this family, just thing that I grew up with that I get to continue in in my, you know, into my life. So it really becomes a personal thing that you're doing for another person or group of people that can lead to a sense of pride that rules out the most stressful situations. We drank some water and ate some food, but we got to stay healthy in other ways too. And one of those ways that I was hesitant to talk about is exercise. For this, we brought back Stacy Geisel and Jenny Helms and added in a personal trainer and former professional bodybuilder, my brother, Adam Lamb. I mean, exercise to me is, is moving the body in a way that challenges the body. Easy and digestible, right? Moving your body in a way that challenges your body, or as you'll hear shortly, puts some stress on your body. So just so we're all on the same page going forward, this is exercise. When I say exercise... That's what I'm talking about. And that actually makes me feel pretty good about my video game treadmill routine. So over time, I've increased the incline, the speed, and the time. You know, I sweat every time, and I've actually come to enjoy this time in the morning. Like, it really sets the tone for my whole day. And I start out on a high note, because while exercise obviously has an effect on your physical health, turns out, no surprises here for, for you, hopefully, the effects on your mental health could be even more impactful. Exercise is incredibly important for people's mental health. I, I've noticed even just my mindset. So I know that people are like, oh yeah, exercise is good for you for like all the health benefits and, um, stress on our bodies can actually be a good thing and our ability to go through stressful situations and then come out of them. This is something that came up in different forums and it was very interesting. The ability to bounce back and react better to stress, like stress on the mind, stress on the body, it's similar to how pain functions in the brain. Studies have shown that some of the same parts of the brain that light up from physical pain are the same that light up from emotional pain. This, of course, brings to mind the entire idea of pain tolerance and trauma and if there could be some relational aspect between the two, but that's a different episode. Uh, just to like get back on the strength training for the brain and body, uh, regularly putting planned stress on your body, exercising, teaches your body how to bounce back from unforeseen stressors in the future. This is super interesting. Here's Adam with more on that theory of bouncing back. You're, you're taking your body through a cycle of breakdown, build, breakdown, build, breakdown, build. And what happens is so let's say you get in a car accident and your body deals with an unplanned breakdown. The person that works out regularly is going to recover way faster and more successful, likely to be less injured. Similar, I mean, I've seen this 100% of the time with women that work out pre-pregnancy. So they work out, they're strong, their body's used to like working out, being sore, building muscle, breaking down. Uh, and then they have a baby, which is a massive disruption for their body and pops right back. Like you'd like, not because they're smaller or their size as much as how well, how fast they get back in the game, but they're back to, hey, I can go to the gym, I can do these other things because their body 
response to that breakdown recovery, breakdown recovery, breakdown recovery, years and years and years. This is actually well documented. Women's recovery time after childbirth is cut down significantly when they have a regular exercise routine in place prior to giving birth, and even more so prior to becoming pregnant. The human body is pretty amazing. But let's talk about the human mind for a little bit. Now I don't do anything unless it's fun for me. And I think that that is something that is missing from a lot of people's workout stuff. I'm Stacy Geisel. I, I'm the owner of Evolve Beyond Limits, which is a human design company. I am a nurse. I'm still a nurse, technically. Don't utilize that, but I am still a nurse. I think it helps with focus, like, and it helps most people kind of focus. And I think that especially if you do it first thing in the morning, there's something that just gives you this like mental edge of like, I've already accomplished something. And now like, there's nothing that I can't do today, you know, so and it just gives people that like that confidence to step into their day, which I think is pretty cool. This feeling of accomplishment and bliss can be explained by two major pieces of exercise. First, exercise causes a release of endorphins in your brain. Those endorphins create a chemical reaction in your brain that makes you happy. So exercise literally makes you happy. In addition, multiple studies discuss the positive feelings associated with mastery and self-efficacy that come from completing a workout. Adam talks a lot about this. When you perform something strong, you know, I think of, you know, back in my younger scrapping days of being a tough person and, and like once you, when you physically exert yourself in a sense or even weightlifting, you feel you're like, dude, I can do anything. I can conquer the world, right? And so it can give you a feeling of self-esteem and confidence going into your day, going into a meeting, going into something like that. That feeling of accomplishment in anything is helpful for confidence and self-esteem. And a quick exercise can be an easy way to achieve that. But if you're a perfectionist, maybe it's more helpful to keep you grounded and more resilient. I've also noticed for me, my mindset has become more resilient because of exercise. So for instance, before I started CrossFit, I think it was much easier for me in my day-to-day -day life to do something. And if I had a couple of struggles, I would give up. I'd feel like a failure. I would struggle to figure out, you know, where's the opportunity in this? Um, I might even create a story about it. And now I think through working out and doing things that are really challenging and CrossFit's one of those unique things, or at least for me, like you're never really good at it. So like every day you're having to like come in and have like radical acceptance about the fact that you're never going to like master it and be like, quote unquote, perfect at it. I think it's actually really good. It sounds really intimidating, but for me, it's been good because it's, it's helped me understand how to reframe that and how to like, do my best. CrossFit is obviously an extreme end of the spectrum of exercise. And for those that seek out that high intensity workout, it may be a good solution. But what about those video game treadmillers like myself? So here's Stacy again, who actually used to do CrossFit, but has since found something more fitting for herself. And this was like the whole thing with me and CrossFit is that like CrossFit, like people love it. And you're going to, you know, who you're going to find in there is the high achievers, the people who are like competitive at their core. And they're just like, they need that, that extra, like super high intensity. And the problem with that can be that 
high intensity exercise is not for everybody. And like, we're already so stressed out as a culture that the last thing we need is something that's going to like get our nervous system that amped up because it's already amped up. So movement became one. I know that it's so important for me to have it every single day because it really does ground me in and it helps me just get into a certain place but your intention behind the movement is so important and like that's something I think that people don't pay attention to is that whenever we're going through life how intentional are we being and a lot of my intention for movement in the past was I wanted to look a certain way rather than I just want to feel really good yes intention this is the key why are you exercising what's the reason what's the why behind it Gyms and Instagram stories fill up every day with people who are exercising with intention, but whether or not that intention is coming from a healthy place may be the issue here. The aesthetic side of it, which is like, hey, I just want to, hey, I want to look good in a bikini or I want to look good, you know, that's that's part of it. But I think really deep, diving deep into why the person wants, you know, what is their, what's their real intention? Uh, I don't know. I want to, I just I want more attention, you know, or like, I want to look more intimidating at the bar because I'm intimidated by that guy. He scares me. So I want to try to look like, no, dude, sir, can't help you. Right. But it's really helping them going deeper. And you understand this with therapy of like, okay, well, why, why do you want to have that? Right. And you start peeling back some of those other things, clear that mess up, change the trajectory. And then now let's go explore exercise because you're way more motivated when it's, when it's real and it's deep as opposed to something that's superficial and surface. You know, even for me early in the, in the space for working out is I want to have big muscles. I wanted the attention. I want to be tough. I want to be strong. I want to be intimidating, right? All unhealthy, all wrong reasons to do it. Each person needs to define their intention uniquely. Like it might be like, Hey, I've been insecure all my life. I have, I never got to play sports. I've, I felt kind of weak and not good enough. And so like, I'm going to go do something that's going to make physically accomplish some things that are going to make me, you know, fill that void. Setting a healthy intention is the first step in an exercise. If you're using exercise as a form of self-care, that intention might be as simple as I want to feel better or I want to sleep better. And while there's different opinions on the intention of wanting to look better, I think as long as you understand psychologically why you want to look better and it's coming from a good place, that's probably okay too. Intention is so important in all of these self-care methods, and I'm glad that came out so early in the series. When it comes to intention for me, I automatically think of the next topic, alcohol. This was a solo episode with just me, and it fell on my third anniversary of being sober. My views have shifted and changed over the years, but there's still a lot that has remained the same and created a stable base for me. So I feel like it's important to keep reminding you that I'm not telling anyone to quit drinking. That is not what this is about, but like anything else you put in your body, fatty foods, medication, I'm just asking you to take stock and add a level of awareness to what you're putting in. Because as a society and as a culture, we are programmed not to think about it. From long before you were born and likely until long after you're gone, alcohol has been and will be an ingrained part of society. It shows up everywhere and it's part of everything. Alcohol is a key player in holiday gatherings, most dinner menus, even entire seasons as a whole. Like, okay, so right now it's summer, right? Uh, Summer can conjure up a lot of visuals, and in many of those things, alcohol is likely present. 
beach days, barbecues, camping, picnics, graduations, poolside. It's not something we give any thought to, but it's always there. And depending on the crowd that you're doing these things with, you may even be more likely to find a cold beer than a bottle of water. It's just normal, and that right there, I think, is where we need to start. Drinking alcohol as a normal behavior is a difficult obstacle when you're evaluating alcohol intake. It's hard to figure out what a baseline is when there's no good example of a baseline around you. This is where a self-evaluation comes into play. You have to trust yourself to do an evaluation, and in order to trust yourself, you have to be honest with yourself. That means that you not only ask yourself the hard questions, but you answer them too. In doing this, you may want to anticipate some form of rationalization as well. For instance, when focusing on the amount you drink in a specific instance, it might be a natural reaction to defend that to yourself. Like if you drink five beers out of a six pack, you may immediately want to tell yourself, it was a party, or we just won the game, or it was a crazy work week. But try to fight that urge to provide context to a negative behavior in order to rationalize why it was okay. I want to repeat that because it's so important. Try to fight the urge to provide context to a negative behavior in order to rationalize why you think it was okay. The truth is that drinking five drinks, aka five beers from a six-pack, is binge drinking. That number drops to four drinks if you're a woman. When was the last time you drank four White Claws or finished a six-pack? It's so much less than we usually think of when we think about binge drinking. And part of that is what society has told us about binge drinking. You know, we relate it to college and young people and blacking out. But by definition, binge drinking is five drinks for men and four drinks for women, regardless of your age or your garnered wisdom. This is important information to know because of the wellness and health risks that come along with binge drinking. Multiple peer-reviewed health journals, including the Journal of Drug and Alcohol Dependence, the Journal Liver International, and the American Journal of Epidemiology, and this is tip of the iceberg, there's millions of them out there, all cite the risks of binge drinking as insomnia, lower overall health quality of life, increased risk of liver disease, increased risk of cancer, heart disease, and overall cardiovascular deaths. Outside of your bodily health, those who binge drink are more likely to become unintentionally injured, use drugs, and drive drunk. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a voice in my head that says, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like in some way, we've been hearing this shit forever, right? Like it... Isn't it just common knowledge that alcohol use leads to liver disease, heart disease, cancer? It's funny, too, because over the last century or even the last few decades, the knowledge we've gained about the damaging effects of alcohol, both in the short term and long term, are astounding. And yet, as a society, there is no change. Isn't that a little fucked up? Like, pardon the language, but when science was like, hey, guys, check out all this stuff about cigarettes... We slowly and like begrudgingly silenced the lobbyists and began to make sweeping changes in the tobacco industry. Uh, younger people probably don't even realize the restrictions we have on advertising tobacco products. Back in the 70s and 80s, that stuff was everywhere. I mean, fuck man, Fred Flintstone was a spokesman for Winston cigarettes. Can you like even put that in your brain right now? That's crazy. I was about to reference a modern cartoon character, but I don't know who that would be. <laughs> But now, though, you know, after we've learned how terrible they are for you, we have a lot of limitations in place in advertising, and there's a pretty straightforward warning label on cigarettes. Alcohol, though, doesn't get any of it. You know, no advertising restrictions, no warning labels. I mean, no warning labels that really mean anything, right? 
don't drink while pregnant and don't drive drunk. That's the best they can tell us. There's no label that tells the drinker that the beverage they are about to consume is known to cause liver damage, liver disease, cancer, and fatal cardiovascular events. This is an example of what I mean when I'm talking about society being to blame some. This is also what makes it hard to give ourselves a self-assessment. If I'm the only voice in your life informing you about the risks of alcohol, that's pretty inefficient, and I'm told I have a voice you can probably ignore if you want. At least that's what all my exes said. But all of this is just food for thought, right? Like, if you're going to be honest with yourself and give a self-assessment, it's important that you have all the facts. Oh man, I get fired up about the alcohol stuff. It's frustrating when stuff that should be obvious is glazed over because politicians and lobbyists and corporations make it that way. Uh, okay, okay, I'm all stressed out now. So I suppose now is a good time to bring in the meditation episode. For this one, we brought back Stacy Geisel and Aaron Kozad. So I'm going to bring them in to work their magic. Focus on the breath. In. Out. In. So what is meditation? Meditation, simply put, is turning your attention inward. Now, the basis of this could be spiritual, reflective, contemplative, or all the above. But in general, you're turning your attention inward. You're focusing on the internal. With that, there are a lot of misconceptions about what qualifies and what you should or shouldn't be thinking. Let's get those out of the way now. One of the common misconceptions is that it's the silence that is actually um, doing that's like the, what the benefit is. And this is why I think people get frustrated with it because they're like, I can't do it. So I'm Stacy Geisel. I, I'm the owner of Evolve Beyond Limits, which is a human design company. Actually, what you're doing in certain meditations is that you're rewiring your brain to be able to stay in the present moment. This is where people end up quitting before they even get started. The present moment is almost looked at as a waste of time in our current society. We are raised and conditioned to chase the next big thing. So if you're not looking into the future and planning, then you're standing still. And somewhere along the way, we were told that standing still is a bad thing. Now, being present in the moment is super powerful. You'll never experience joy, love, excitement, sadness, or any other emotion in a fully immersive way if you can't be present for those moments when they happen. If you're like me, maybe it's not the future you're focusing on all the time, but the past. I, for one, am very introspective, and in my journey to discover the whys in my behaviors and actions, I often reflect on the past. This can also be detrimental to experiencing the present moment, as you always have a cloudy old lens on what you're seeing and experiencing. Now, another side effect of constantly thinking about the future and the past is anxiety. The antidote to anxiety is to stay in the present moment, because if we're not thinking about the past or the future, there's no reason to worry, right? Because we're just here. And that's one of the big things with meditation. But to learn to teach your brain how to do that, it's actually when you're in a meditation and you start to think about something and you're able to notice it and pull yourself back, it's in that pulling yourself back that the brain is starting to rewire. So the more you notice your thoughts and bring them back is actually where the 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 benefit is happening, not so much in the being able to sit there in total silence like, and not think about anything ever. This is very important to keep in mind. A lot of people I talk to think that meditation is keeping your mind clear and quiet and empty, but that's not how minds work, right? There are constant thoughts that come and go, and we experience this throughout the entire day. 
Our brains are actively scanning everything around us at all times. Smells, sights, sounds, feelings, taste. So no matter what you're doing or focusing on or talking about, your brain is throwing things at you in a constant stream of memories and ideas and feelings, both emotional and physical. Aaron talks more about this, and if you remember, we caught up with Aaron on his drive to the Dharma Zen Center, where he's an instructor. My name is Aaron Kozad, professional chef. Uh, additionally, I am a Zen teacher at Dharma Gate Zen in Troy. And that, that's where the, the seated meditation comes into play, like fo- learning to control, focus the mind, watch how it arises, and uh, learn how it works, right? We, we all have this sort of automatic programming through evolution to keep us sort of alive, and then through our upbringing and our society. And these things fire off automatically, really without us knowing. And through Samatha meditation, which is single-pointed focus meditation, you can start to watch the mind arise and recognize its auto-programming and then sort of become a, a hacker and reprogram your own brain. Then you can start to learn to let thoughts pass. Aaron brings up one of the first types of meditation I want to mention. Samatha, or single-pointed focus meditation, is a little contrary to what we usually conjure in our minds when we think of meditation because it involves keeping our eyes open. This may seem counterintuitive to turning your mind inward because you're focusing on a single point visually and externally. But with that single point of focus, you allow your mind to wander because you're not taking in all of what is around you, but instead focusing on one single point. Like Aaron mentioned, this is when your mind will start to interrupt you with those thoughts. And the practice of meditation is learning to acknowledge those thoughts and let them pass. This can be the barrier for a lot of people. They want to get to the silence because they think the silence is the goal. But what you're actually doing on your way to the silence is rewiring your brain to be able to take pause in the real world. I think Aaron actually explains this a lot better. Right, yeah. Like, during the meditation time, they'll be there, you know? And and the other thing you can do is kind of note the type of thought and let it pass. Like, if it's a past or future or memory or plan, like, sometimes that's helpful because you're like, okay, that's a memory, and then you let it go past. Or I'm planning something, and you let it go past. And then you start to you start to see what where you live. Like, I often live in the future. I don't really think about the past very much. But I'm constantly planning. The other thing is, you know, I think people are like, well, but what about, you know, during meditation, I can learn stuff about my programming, right, that I want to change. So after meditation, it's good to have, like, a journal. And you write down at the end kind of some overlying themes that you can then sit in reflection about and then figure out where they came from. But you don't want to do it during the meditation period. You, you can uncover a lot of, you know, a lot of like unhealthy patterns that you have with people. And then what's helpful about that is when you see that pattern in meditation and the more you do this, you start to see the mind arise in normal everyday life. So now you might be interacting with this person that always does some specific thing and that specific thing always sends you to this place and then, you know, you already know how it's going to play out. So then you're in real life and they do it and you now have a pause and that pause is kind of the superpower of meditative practice where you can decide I'm going to do the unhealthy thing that never ends up the way I want it to or I'm going to do the opposite and try to see if I can steer this in another direction, or I'm going to do nothing. And you start to realize, like, you don't you don't even have to actually do anything. Most of the time, the best option is nothing. 
and then the, it, it changes these these patterns and you'll notice people saying like oh you're you know you're a lot more calm it's like no i'm just not saying what what i want <laughs> but it's working out better and and then ultimately you start to see your own you know the stuff you want to change you know and a lot of the time you're 50 percent of that equation this may be the most beneficial way to meditate in my opinion uh, it's like therapy for yourself, right? Keeping a journal of what comes up as you meditate is a long-term practice that, as Aaron mentions, is incredibly helpful to your everyday life over time. At first, you might just notice you write down small mundane stuff, like, did I remember to turn off the coffee maker? Or, I wonder what my brother's doing. Or, why are brown bears brown and black bears black, but polar bears are white? Shouldn't they be called white bears? Is that racist? Whatever your thoughts are, as you begin to track them in a regular practice, you can uncover those patterns of future thinking or past thinking and begin to reframe things in how you approach them and gain more clarity during these times. I feel better, more calm, ready to tackle the next task. I keep a to-do list here next to me on my desk, and there's an item on there that's almost on there every week, writing practice. This is a form of meditation, kind of, but really it works as its own form of self-care. Writing, whether it be you know journaling or writing with some sort of purpose, like a book, is, is amazing. And, and we got an amazing person to discuss this with. Published writer and writing practice instructor, Katie Allen. I think writing is a form of self-care because I've been doing it my entire life and it has carried me to where I am now. Um, it's delivered me really through or to the other side of a lot of pain and hardship and suffering from like all the angsty teen stuff that we all go through to like some really deep um, just existential crises to depression um, to all sorts of things. And so, yeah, I, from journaling to writing practice to writing a full out book, um, writing is for me the most important form of self-care in my life. Just as Katie mentioned how writing's carried her through depression and hardship, writing can also help manage, regulate, and devolve symptoms of those and many other issues in the world of mental health. In one study published in the journal Archives of Psychiatric Nursing, Mothers of children and adolescents with emotional and behavioral issues were given directions for keeping a diary for a six-week period, either to write a gratitude journal or free write about what the best possible version of themselves looks like. All of the participants saw increases in optimism and gratitude and were able to better self-regulate during frustrating or difficult interactions with their children. Now, I'm not a parent, but I know a lot of them, and I have seen the helplessness and stress that comes along with having a troubled child. In fact, I've been that troubled child, and it's pretty impressive to see that a simple journaling activity can help improve those situations. But journaling is only one form of writing. As I mentioned earlier, there's a bunch out there. So let's talk to Katie and find out more. There are so many ways to write, but most people who hear writing, they immediately kind of tighten up and they think about like, oh, writing for homework, writing an, an essay for college, writing something I have to submit, writing, you know, requires skills, writing where I get a grade or feedback, writing a report for work. And there's a lot of negative associations with it. And so it is important to clarify that when I'm in this conversation, in this interview talking about writing, 
and I will say writing practice, I'm referring to writing practice um, because for me, that's the ultimate self-care form of writing, but there are so many different kinds of writing. So there's journaling, which is what I did my entire life. And I only heard about writing practice, by the way, like two years ago. Um, there are a lot of similarities, but journaling is just showing up to the page and writing what's going through your heart, your mind, what's going on today, uh, maybe reflecting a little bit. Um, but then you stop and reflect and write. You, you might um, not have a topic. Most of the time we just start writing. Of course, that contrasts with writing for a purpose, whether that's a, a report or an assignment or um, an essay. But there's something in between. There's a lot, I think, in between um, that is called writing practice. This might be our first obstacle in wrapping our heads around writing as a form of self-care. As a modern society, we often relate writing to work. This only makes sense, though, right? Like, for over a decade of our life, much more if you go to college and grad school, writing is something you do, as Katie mentioned, for a grade and with a deadline. It always involves some sort of pressure. So let's focus on the art of writing practice for now and try to let go of the thought that writing has to be for something or someone. And let's just try to look at writing as something that is for you. I want to shift from journaling to something Katie brought up, writing practice. This is another form of writing that you do just for you, but there are some foundational structures to it. So let's learn about those. It has the word practice in it because it is a practice. It's not something you do, you know, at 11 p.m. to finish by midnight to submit. Writing practice, just like meditation practice or yoga practice or exercise practice, is something that you do on a regular basis to grow the skills that come with it, the benefits that come from it. And there are so many health benefits. And so with writing practice, the pressure is off. It is so lovely. The pressure is off because there's no good or bad in writing practice. There is no judgment, comment, or feedback at any point. Um, but there are kind of three main components. Um, you, first of all, will sit before writing practice. You don't have to, but you can. It's highly encouraged. And by sitting, I mean meditation. And you can meditate before you write and then you read aloud, which is a really powerful thing. I could talk about each of these three things separately, but as far as writing practice, you put pen to paper and you write without stopping. You write without editing, without correcting spelling, grammar, without adding on your comments because our internal editor is always ready to you know, clamp down on what we've just done or said or thought and judge it and critique it and say why it's not good enough. And so with writing practice, you're trying to get ahead of those thoughts and judgments or what some people might refer to as monkey mind um, by keeping your hand moving. So if you don't stop to edit or modify what you're thinking or feeling or remembering, you find that the more you practice, the deeper you can go and the more you can really learn about yourself and your patterns and ways of thinking. I love this a steady stream of conscious writing. It can feel unnatural too, like not stopping and taking a moment to fix a mistake or pausing to find the right word. Sometimes <laughs> I'll write out my thought process in those times that I can't find the right word. And if you read it, it will like verbatim say, uh, and then I found, oh, what's the word? There's this descriptor I'm thinking of and I can't place it. It's not depleted, but it's similar. I guess I could just write depleted for now and move on, but that's not the word. And you may think that all of that was trash and pointless and gibberish, but it's a practice. And as you get into the flow and begin to do it more, those inner critic voices become quieter and you're better able to move through your writing and potentially have a breakthrough. 
For those of you that have been following along with the summer series, you may be getting a feeling of deja vu because there are aspects of writing practice that are similar to meditation. Here's Katie again. It really is an extension of meditation practice. In fact, it is rooted in the 2,000-plus-year tradition of, of Zen Buddhism, as Natalie Goldberg writes about in her book, Writing on the Bones, Freeing the Writer Within, which is what I read and how I learned about writing practice. And um, as soon as I added that to my life, um, everything changed. And in fact, within a few months, I independently published my first book. Um, I had been so in my head about it, how it should really look, what it should be like, um, what it shouldn't look, or what it shouldn't be like because I was fresh out of 10 years of teaching in academia at the university level. And I was teaching classes like academic writing for graduate students at the University of Michigan. So to go from that end of the spectrum to creative writing and memoir and sharing a personal experience um, with whoever chooses to, to read it is really hard. Um, you feel really vulnerable and we're a society that does not like to you know, feel discomfort or pain or vulnerability, um, though I see that's changing, which is good. And it's because of practices like meditation and such. Writing practice is possibly my favorite thing to do with someone. It's personal and intimate and allows for a connection while also providing a space of solitude and comfort and sharing yourself with not just another person, but yourself as well. In a study published in the Journal of Creativity and Mental Health, researchers discussed the benefits of using writing prompts, just like in writing practice, to help adolescents name and uncover traumas and other issues they may be dealing with and unable to properly process. And in regard to processing things, especially thoughts and feelings about yourself, one of the most remarkable things about writing practice is the last step of reading the writing aloud. Some of the biggest breakthroughs I've had in therapy is saying out loud the things that I've been thinking and feeling for years. There's something that happens when you verbalize those thoughts and feelings and make them so much more real and impactful on your well-being. Oh man, writing is stressing me out a little right now. I just finished my first draft of my memoir discussing the two years I lived in Los Angeles. Um, I thought the writing part would be the hardest, but it's the reading it and editing it that has really become a wall for me. Also, now that I'm done writing it, I have more time to see people, uh, which there has been a shortage of since I started writing it. And that brings me to our next topic, human contact. Licensed therapist Jenny Helms joins us again for a discussion on why human contact is a form of self-care. Attachment is really important. Connection is really important. And even through evolution, those who were socially isolated often ended up dying. Like the consequence was usually death or, you know, not having as many resources. So us being connected, our bodies like biochemically reward that. And it was, it's part of actually what um, helped us survive as a species a long time ago. And we haven't really like, people forget that like we used to be tribal species and like, we're very, we're a lot more advanced now. And technically you could be on your own and get food delivered to your house and like physically survive quote unquote, but neurochemically that wreaks havoc on our bodies. And we don't get the neuroregulation of being around other individuals and the, and the different things that we need and connection. And, and that does it just, it, it totally depletes our mental health. This effect on mental health is well-measured. In the Journal of Aging and Health, it was found that people subjected or forced into isolation from their friends were associated with more depressive symptoms and higher levels of psychological distress. 
Some of this can be accredited to what happens in the mind and body when people are socially isolated. This is something Dr. Andrew Humerman, professor of neurobiology at Stanford Medicine, regularly discusses. Here's Jenny with a bit more on that. Andrew Huberman was the first person that I've heard discuss this, and now I've heard a couple more neurobiologists or neuroscientists describe what they call tachykinins, which are neuropeptides that are released in the body when we're in social isolation, and so or long periods of social isolation. Um, so there's actually like some biological component that shifts in us, like something shifts in us biologically. It's not just our perception. It's genuinely we're we're creating these neuropeptides and when they've done studies in i know mice are not humans but when they've done studies in mice what they saw was if they have more of these neuropeptides they're angrier they are more depressed they are antisocial sometimes so like they'll actually do things that are antisocial and so it's been kind of interesting to see how we've also seen this play out you know, throughout the pandemic. I mean, people seem to be a little bit more on edge, whether that comes out in anxiety or anger. And and also it's weird because it becomes this like reinforcing pattern where they'll be more socially isolated. And then again, like the cycle continues. So from a biological level, it's not good for us. It creates more feelings of anger, more feelings of depression, more feelings that can create or cause us to be what we call antisocial. These chemicals and neural peptides provide some biological reasoning for why, according to an article published in the journal Frontiers in Psychology, they found that loneliness, like that caused by isolation, has been linked to irritability, depression, negative self-thoughts, and a 26% increase in the risk of premature death. So with all these scary and convincing reasons to stop isolating, including the obvious fact that someone with depression is helping to create a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy by continuing to be alone, let's switch the lens and focus on the positives you get out of being around others and the benefits of physical touch. On the opposite side of isolation is socialization and human contact. And these have huge benefits, including the release of a hormone called oxytocin, or what some romantic scientists might call the love hormone. Oxytocin is produced during childbirth and stimulates the muscles of the uterus in women, but it's also released during skin-to-skin contact and during sex. That fun feeling you have when you're holding the person you love or loving the person you hold, that's from oxytocin. Yeah, so with oxytocin, you know, you we require human contact for oxytocin. And that's a really important connection chemical. And I think the other thing too is we, I mean, we have all these theories and we only know a small percentage of what there is to know about all of this. So I'm just talking about the theories and what we've seen as like a species over time. We develop in connection. We actually, our brains develop in relationships. So if a kid does not have like another human around it, they will not develop. And so kids that are severely neglected you'll see them have the social developments. Like they may not even develop like the ability to speak in certain ways. So severe neglect, like our brain, like we need that as, especially when we're little, especially when we're little, we need to be in connection and be close to develop and become essentially well-formed human beings. In addition to helping us develop connection and the ability to connect with others, Physical touch has not only been shown to be linked with higher oxytocin levels, 
but according to the Journals of Gerontology, in an article published just last year, physical touch has been shown to help lower blood pressure, lead to better sleep, and most recently discovered physical touch could potentially reduce the recurrence of inflammation from illnesses such as those we've seen associated with the coronavirus. There are no shortages of physical touch benefits, but there is the potential awkwardness of putting it into play, right? Like, how do we go out and ensure we are having physical contact with other people? I personally went around in sixth grade and asked girls if I could hug them, and I do not recommend this method. I was not a popular child, but there are ways in your everyday life that you can incorporate physical touch. I think when it comes to like physical touch and hugs, because, okay, before I go into that, I think it's also important to note there was a theory about we need four hugs a day for maintenance and eight hugs a day, I think it is for growth. And if you get less than that, that's like actually really bad for your mental health over time. It may start with making sure you're getting those hugs and doing those rituals with like family members in ways that are like safe and appropriate. So for me, and you can even hug, okay, this sounds silly, but you can even hug your dog. Like you being close to your dog and having affection from your dog totally counts. Um, And we have rituals in our house where before we leave, like whether it's to work or sometimes, you know, if he's going off to like something different, like we always say goodbye. And part of goodbye is like a hug or a kiss, something like that. Like there's just some sort of physical connection. And same thing when we see each other again, there's the like, hey, hug. Like, you know, it's just like little rituals like that, like kind of building it in. And like, just like making sure that you actually, you just build in rituals where you're getting that from people that are close to you. And I even have really good friends at work that often like we hug and it's almost natural, but they're people that we've already developed that safety, like over time, you know, I know, obviously if you haven't seen somebody for a while, you're going to have to say, Hey, like, are we hugging again? Where are we at with that? Cause it, it might not be accessible until it is, but once it is, making that something that's part of your daily routine in one way or another. I love hugging. Are you a hugger? Not everyone is, but it's worth exploring if you're being triggered by it. There's more as we get into the weeds on that episode, but overall, I think it's conveyed how important human contact is. Sometimes the human contact you need isn't with another person, though. It's with yourself. And that's where things get a little spicy as we bring in sex therapist Sarah Tomakich to discuss self-pleasure. You know, one of the things masturbation can be used for is if if orgasm is something that you struggle with. It can be a way to experiment. It can be a way to get to know yourself better. But I think whenever we go into a pleasurable experience, goal-oriented, we take out the joy of the journey. If my goal with masturbation is as a self-care practice, my goal is to get to to know myself better, to get to know better what, what I find pleasurable. Maybe one of my goals could be to explore new parts of my body that bring me pleasure. I don't know. It can be different for everybody. But if I go in with the goal of just learning more about myself and how my body works, I might orgasm as a as a part of the journey. But maybe that wasn't the destination going in. Maybe the destination was... What brings me pleasure? And I think that's a question we can ask ourselves in all areas, not just sexually. I'll admit, this was harder to wrap my head around than I thought it would be. It's strange to think about going into a self-pleasure or masturbation practice without the end goal of orgasm. But if I think about it as some sort of inevitability later and allow the time in between to be more about self-discovery, 
it really takes a turn and becomes something different, more meaningful, and more beneficial than just aiming for an orgasm. Even though we're discussing self-pleasure, masturbation as a form of self-care, there are a number of benefits that a practice like this can have on other social aspects of your life. Obviously, feeling more positive about yourself and raising your self-esteem and lowering your anxiety are all good for feeling more confident in social situations. But on a more intimate level, a regular masturbation practice and spending time learning what forms of touch and sensation you like can be instrumental in a fun and enjoyable sex life with your partner. I think this is something that can be such such a gift to a relationship is if you can tell your partner, here's how I like to be touched, here's the temperature at which I like to be touched, here's the, the textures in which I like to be touched, and um, you can share somebody that information in a way that feels safe and vulnerable, I think that can really be a way to bring people closer, a way to try new things together. It's a way to be experimental without having to sort of guess, you know, you don't have to up, up, down, down, left, right, A, B, somebody's body. They already tell you. They give you the cheat code. You don't have to guess the cheat code because they know. And it can be very connecting experience to be able to be able to tell somebody how, how you like to be touched. And I think, you know, mutual masturbation, which means people in relationships can share their mas masturbatory practices with each other in tandem or if you're in a throuple or however your relationship is organized, you guys can do that together without any risk of infection, without any risk of pregnancy. And this could be a way you still have very much bring and receive pleasure from each other. You can learn a lot watching your somebody you're in a relationship with masturbate because you can then see how they like to be touched because you're learning from them by watching them touch themselves. It's a, it can be a very, very connecting experience if you're both are open to it, but it can be very vulnerable because now you're showing somebody, this is what I do when, when you're not around. Masturbating is nothing new to me, but my conversation with Sarah really opened my eyes to all of the other benefits and possibilities that come along with using masturbation as a self-care practice. From turn-ons to turn-offs, that's what we're doing here. The next topic we tackled was personal financial management. There's the turn-off. Discussing money makes me cringe, uh, but when I got to talk to a financial therapist, that's a thing, and we discussed that much more in the episode, Lindsay Brian Podvin. I began to unravel a lot of things I learned at a young age, and this became my favorite episode overall. So it's really important to think about when we say self-care, I usually tack on the word financial in front of it because we have to practice financial self-care as well, because you could say, oh, I'm taking a self-care day and, you know, play hooky from work and go on a bike ride. And all of those things are great. And I encourage you to do them. And if taking that time away from work is going to cause you more stress because you aren't able to maybe pay for the things like the gas to take, you know, a nice bike ride out of town and all that. Essentially what I'm saying is if you want to practice financial self-care, we don't want to practice financial self-care that or self-care that further digs you into a financially stressful situation. So financial self-care is the idea of implementing money into your wellness practices so you can better afford to take care of yourself spiritually, emotionally, physically, all of that good stuff. This has always sounded like the worst thing in the world to me. 
implementing money into my wellness practice is a task I've actively resisted most of my life. But as we learn in therapy, where there's resistance, there may be something to work out there, right? So in my research on financial therapy and your individual money story or money script, I uncovered a lot of useful information. And if you're one of those people who love to do personality tests or work with the Enneagram, you're probably going to love this. So when it comes to money stories or money scripts, there are four main buckets that each of us fall into. Remember that these are underlying beliefs or assumptions that we have about money, and they're likely only partially true, but recognizing where we fall is the first step to implementing a self-care routine that involves finance and possibly healing our money story. The four types are money avoidance, that's mine, money worship, money status, and money vigilance. The titles are somewhat self-explanatory, but I encourage you to look them up and find out where you live in your thoughts and feelings around money. When I read the full two-page description of money avoidance from the 2015 textbook titled Financial Therapy, I found myself laughing uncontrollably at how accurately this random book was able to describe my thoughts and feelings on money in great and very exact detail. To show that this was spot on, I had Erica, my wife, read hers, which is Money Vigilance, and she had the same reaction, just nodding along in agreement to the whole description. But now that I have like identified this money story, I mean, what do I do? Am I alone in this struggle? Well, basically, I would say you're not alone, right? We, and I should, should say most of us, have not had exposure to financial planning lessons, advice, wisdom, or knowledge as we grew up. And the reason I say as we grew up is because like most things in psychology, our brain does the bulk of it. It's developing between the ages of zero and seven, zero and eight. So if we go back to the lessons we learned about money in our early childhood, it helps to set a picture for why we do what we do now. Because some behavioral finance researchers have found that we have formed our beliefs about money, or to your point, Justin, our money story by the time we're about eight years old. So when we get that icky feeling when it comes to sitting down with our money now, it could be a lot of old stories, old junk, old baggage that no longer is applicable, but because we really haven't been in a society that's open to talking about money, we don't know what to do with those feelings. And a lot of us, through no fault of our own, have a great coping skill of procrastination. It works really, really well until it doesn't any longer. Hey, Lindsay, get out of my head. I feel attacked. But seriously, <laughs> procrastination has worked really well before until it didn't. It works really well because it makes it so that we don't have to face an uncomfortable situation. But then the flip side of that is then when you are forced to face it, it can feel really overwhelming. So to that person who's sitting with that ickiness and is like, oh, I have to sit down with money. What do I even do? I think that's your opening question right there. What do I even need to do with my money? And really thinking about what do I need? Do I need to know what I earn? Do I need to know what I spend? Do I need to know what my bills are due? Do I need to be thinking about my kid's college fund? What are kinds of the things on my financial to-do list that have been kind of lingering in the back of my mind and kind of doing a brain dump of all that junk that's in your head tasks-wise? And then we can kind of take a look at the emotional stuff and kind of figure out what feelings are coming up when we look at those different tasks. So first is just getting it all out on the table and labeling it and then making a decision from there of what makes sense to do next. Laying it all out on the table can be a daunting task in itself. Whether you're technically doing fine with money and have no real debt issues, or you find yourself in a place where you have been procrastinating and avoiding bills and responsibilities, 
sometimes it's just not something you want to do. It can be especially hard when your money story can lead you down some pretty bad roads. Whether it's avoiding money, spending too much, or even spending too little, the ramifications on your health are damning. In a 2008 article in the journal Psychological Services, they note that all of the above spending habits, in addition to other traits driven by your money story, like being materialistic, are all related to lower levels of well-being. And those who have plenty of money, but have yet to address the relationship to it, such as those who are wealthy and materialistic, report lower levels of self-actualization, vitality, and happiness, and higher levels of anxiety, physical symptoms, and unhappiness. When we think about these negative feelings, though, and we think about how much of it is instilled within us at a young age, how can we control our own narrative and wording? And can money really ever buy happiness? Here's Lindsay again. There are two kind of through lines that I see regardless of what somebody is bringing into the practice. And one is this kind of sense of like, I just don't get money. I'm not good at money. I'm bad at money. And I think it's really important to separate that from who we are because nobody's bad at money. We might have made mistakes with money or unwise choices with money, but to say you're bad at money is to really put on a ton of shame onto yourself and to further bury yourself in, in judgment and harm. So to separate it out and say, I made a mistake with money instead of saying I'm bad with money, it's a little bit of you know mental separation, but it makes a difference. So that's one thing that I hear all the time. And then the other thing is that in the United States, we've really been fed this narrative that if you follow these five steps, your life will be happy, you'll have enough money, and everything will be okay. And I think it's important to just examine that from a more curious and realistic-based lens, that yes, when you make more money up to a certain point, research does show that your happiness does increase, but it kind of levels off around 75K. Now that study was done about 10 years ago, so with inflation, we're probably talking closer to like 95 or 100K. So if you think about that, that your happiness increases as your salary increases up to about $100,000 per year, then after that, your happiness levels out. To me, that makes a lot of sense in that by the time you're hitting six figures in income, you're not only taking care of your basic needs, you also have a cushion and, and the ability to do some additional things for fun. And so once we've kind of taken care, if you can remember Psychology 101, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is like this triangle. And at the bottom of that triangle is making sure your basic needs are met. So like food, sex, shelter, making sure that you have the basics to survive. And once we're generating $100,000 or more a year, we have hopefully more than enough to meet that bottom and then start moving up. And that likely reduces some of that anxiety and, and makes sense why people would be happier. But then you notice it levels off. So it's important for folks who maybe, um, I see this, this kind of story a lot for folks who grew up um, working class or in poverty, and then now are multi six figure earners or, you know, have some kind of big shot job, they'll, they'll come to me like, I still feel like shit. It makes no sense. I'm making all this money. I don't get it. And it's kind of like, yeah, money helps. And also, there's other stuff that money can't solve for. And that is not to say that money doesn't buy happiness because I do think it does up to a point. Finally, our last topic we covered was digitally detoxing, taking a break from screens and social media, monitoring your time spent, and other ways to be aware of how much you're using devices and the effects it has on you, whether you know it or not. It's pretty crazy how bad most of us are. 
The overall gist of it though, turn it off. Unplug once in a while. Make some rules and set some boundaries with your devices. I hope you guys have enjoyed this self-care summer alongside me, and I cannot wait to get back into the regular season and share some of these great interviews I've been doing. The first ones come out on Labor Day, September 5th, and it's just the beginning of all the amazing people I have been talking to. I want to thank all my guests that joined me for the summer series, including Stacy Geisel, Lauren Carroll, Jenny Helms, Erica Lamb, Aaron Kozad, Katie Allen, Lindsay Bryan Podvin, Adam Lamb, and Sarah Tomaketch. Another shout out to all of our Patreon supporters, people like Jack and Z and Mandy and Kara and Andy and Jenny and Erica and Dustin and Katie and Michelle and many more. If you would like to join the Patreon and help out, it's only about a dollar a month and all that money goes right into keeping the blood pumping on this show from hosting fees to hardware. So head over to patreon.com slash friend request pod to sign up. I would really appreciate it. I will talk to you guys next week. And in the meantime, I hope you take care of yourselves and practice a good self-care routine. Okay. I love you. Bye-bye.